You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. church. Good morning. How are we doing? If you have your Bibles, open them to 1 John. 1 John, we are picking back up where we left off last week, continuing in our series uh, that we've titled Under Construction. This is a series that's going to force us to really examine the basic building blocks of the Christian faith. We like to think a lot of the times in ways that overcomplicate things. And what I love about 1 John is that John is going to explain the basic doctrines of Christianity in a very simple manner to have us come back to just the basic building blocks of what Jesus laid out in his ministry after the resurrection. Last week, we went back to the basics and we considered for the morning the foundational building block, really the foundation of the building blocks, you could think of it that way, uh, of the Christian faith, which was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we learned in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is that the resurrection is a reality. It, it's not a myth, it's not a legend, it's not a story. It happened in real time, in real human history. It had witnesses. Uh, it, it was attested to by the apostles. They saw, remember, they heard, they touched with their hands Jesus. They believed this reality reality because it was reality. It wasn't a story. It was their experience. They saw it. They were there, and they want you to know about it. And what what John reminded us of is that when we believe this reality, there are results that follow, namely that you would have better fellowship with one another within the context of the Christian community, that you would have fellowship with God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that you would have a deep sense of of spirit-wrought fulfillment even in the most difficult circumstances that you face in your life. This morning, we move on to verses 5 through 10. We're going to just, as I said last week, go through this verse by verse. And what we're going to discover in 1 John 1, 5 through 10 is a little bit of a blueprint. You could think of it that way. Now, now what is a blueprint? It is a design plan, a technical drawing and construction that tells you how to build something. I mean, that's a very simple way of defining it. But a blueprint will do at least two things for you. Number one, blueprints instruct us. They teach us. They, They reveal to us things. They tell us where where certain things are meant to go. They tell us how long or how tall or how wide or how deep, not the Father's love, but just, you know, basic walls and columns. The, The Bible tells us how long, how tall, how deep, how wide the Father's love is. They reveal to us necessary things that we need to know when we are building something. You'll notice that uh, the stage continues to go under construction this morning. That will continue as we move through this series. But So understand that a blueprint will instruct you. It also corrects you. Sometimes you make mistakes when you're building. Sometimes you put things in the wrong place and you come back to the blueprint and you realize, wait a minute, that wasn't supposed to go there. That was supposed to be moved over this amount of space. If you uh, go into the foyer right now, don't go right now, that'd be awkward, but, but after service would be fine, uh, you'll notice in the center of the foyer, if you look directly up, there's a giant hole, right, that goes up to the, the second floor. If you were to stand there, and I'm going to just drive some of you so crazy in a moment. This is going to be so much fun. If you were to stand there and just look at it and maybe measure, if you are someone who carries around a tape measure, you would notice that that center is 
two inches off center. Yeah, it's two inches off center. So uh, John is building that up. We've got some things going on upstairs as well, and he discovered that. He was moving those walls to match the, the runners up top, and they're two inches off center. Someone didn't look at the blueprint correctly when they were building this building, and I suppose by the time they got to that point, they just thought, you know what, uh, two inches is going to have to do. It's fine. Incidentally, a little history about this building, history about this church. I didn't know this until a couple weeks ago. That opening in the foyer, there was purpose for that. Uh, when they constructed this building, the purpose for that was that in the center of the foyer was intended to be a very large water fountain. Uh, water fixture that was supposed to shoot up all the way up to the second floor in true early, mid to 1990s fashion. Um, very, uh, what was that church in Chicago? Uh, why am I slipping my mind? Uh, oh gosh, what is it? What is it? Willow Creek, very Willow Creek uh, feel. Uh, they, they realized after they built the building, if we put a fountain here, there will be no foyer space. And so luckily they didn't do that. But there is plumbing and everything in the center of that room for that exact thing. Blueprints correct. That's the point. They instruct and they correct. Uh, this morning, as we consider 1 John 1, 5 through 10, we find a blueprint for our lives that I think is both instructive and corrective. It, it, it gives us... Uh, a way of, of, of living, and, and it tells us what to do when we don't live that way. I have two points that we're going to cover this morning in this text. What to do is the first point. What does the Bible tell us to do? How to live? How does it instruct us to live? And the second point is what to do when you don't do what you're supposed to do. In other words, how do you correct yourself when you move off center from God's word? Let's jump in. We're going to read the text together. We're going to start in verse 5 if you have your Bibles open. It says this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, I love this, this is the gospel, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There's a lot here, uh, so let's jump in and talk about it. We're going to begin, as I said, with what to do. What does the Bible instruct us to do as Christians? The key commandment in this whole uh, little section of Scripture is, is found in verse 7. It's in the subjunctive mood, so it doesn't feel like a command, but, but trust me, it is a command. If we walk in the light, that is the commandment here in this passage. This is what we're supposed to do. Walk in the light. Now, before we unpack that, what that looks like, we need to understand the significance of this light theme, because it's going to come up again over and over again. And so I want to break down 1 John as a whole for you so you understand the structure, because the structure is going to dictate, in a lot of ways, how we understand what John is writing. John divides this letter into two themes. God is light, and alternatively, God is love. And they are both true. He's going to prove this out throughout this letter. But uh, the light theme really begins in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. 
And in him there is no darkness at all. That theme is worked out beginning in 1 John 1, 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 10, which we'll get to in about 2025. It's going to be really a lengthy study. I'm just kidding. It won't take that long. God is light. And John says we should walk in it. And then we get to 1 John 3, 11, and we get a second theme. Notice that he says almost the exact same thing that he says in verse 5, but he changes it a little bit. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Exact same language as one fine. This is the message that we have heard from the beginning and that you have heard from the beginning. But instead that, that, that God is light and we should walk in that light, what John says is we ought to love one another. And that is grounded in... If you go to chapter 4, verse 16, the reality that God is love. So God is light and God is love. We walk in the light because God is light and we love one another because God is love. Are you following me? Okay, so we're working with the light theme for the next several weeks. And, and the question on the table, I think, for us is what does the light of God mean? When John says God is light and we should walk in that light, what does that actually mean in real life? That sounds great, sounds very spiritual, but what does it mean to walk in the light of God? There's a lot of ways that we can understand this, uh, several things that have been put out through the years by various different theologians. I wanna give you three possibilities, one that I think probably encapsulates the whole of it. Uh, one way we could understand it is that it means to walk in the light of truth, to walk in the light of truth. So for example, Psalm 43, verse three, the psalmist says, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Light in the Bible is often connected to the concept of revelation, the revelation of God that leads to life. And I don't mean the book of revelation, right? Which is, by the way, one singular revelation, not revelations. I'm talking about all revelation, all of God's revealing, and that's really what the word means, a revealing. It's in Greek, the word apocalypsis, the word from which we get our English word apocalypse, and it means simply a disclosure or to reveal something to someone. So anytime God reveals something, that truth that he is revealing becomes a binding reality on the earth. God's revelation about himself his revelation about us, when we better understand ourselves, uh, his revelation about creation, how he creates the world, Genesis 1 and 2, all of these things become a binding standard on creation. They are true regardless of how it is received. So for example, we have the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and God reveals things to us like, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness, three of the 10. Regardless of what you think about the morality of these laws, they are true. They inform us how we are intended to live, how you were designed to live. That, that in other words, God created you with a purpose. He intended you to live a specific way and God's law in various ways details to us how that purpose is to be played out. So when you break God's law, what you're doing is you're, you're actually walking against the purpose God made you for. But, but these things are binding regardless of what you think. So for example, if, if we were to, as a society, legalize murder, which we've done for a while now through abortion, but that's, that was two weeks ago, um, consider now for a moment that Murder is on the table in any form. It's totally legal. It's no longer a crime to kill. It would still be wrong 
regardless of whether or not it is legal in this country because it violates God's truth. Do you get that? It doesn't matter if the law says you can do it on earth, God's law is the higher law. It, it, it gives us the final word on how God desires us to live. We don't get to decide what is and what is not moral. God has already decided this. So and to walk in his light, it means in part at least to walk in the truth that he has revealed to us, okay? It could also mean to walk in the light of what we'll call illumination, and what I mean by that is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that apart from God's Spirit, we are unable to understand spiritual things. You, you just cannot do it. First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul makes the distinction between a spiritual person and a natural person, meaning a person who has been born again of the Spirit, a person who's believed the gospel, been born again, and a person who has not been born again, a non-Christian. Paul says in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person does not understand the things of God because they cannot understand the things of God. Why? Because they don't have the light, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Jesus himself alludes to this. Luke chapter 8, he tells the parable of the sower and the seed. And, and it's, a, it's a parable that most of the people standing there, including the disciples, don't really understand. And so Jesus has to unpack the meaning of that parable to the disciples. In verse 9, they say, what does this mean, Jesus? That was a really weird thing to say. We don't understand what you're saying. In verse 10, Jesus says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. Did you catch what Jesus said? I'm talking in parables, so it'll be confusing to people who don't get it. That's what he says. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 is actually the passage he's quoting here. This, he's quoting a passage from Isaiah, but the point is very clear. They don't understand these parables because they are not able to understand these parables, but we, the disciples of Jesus, do understand them because the secrets of the kingdom have been given to us through the illumination of the Spirit. So the walk in the light of God means, in part, to walk in the light of the illumination of God's Holy Spirit. More generally, I think that, that what John is intending to communicate here is the light of moral uprightness, of moral uprightness. Ultimately, I think what John means by light is to not only recognize God's moral law, <clears throat> but to agree with it and live it out. You're not gonna get it perfect, you're fallen, you need grace, you need a savior, but loving Jesus means in part wanting to please him, wanting to obey him, that's what Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the reason I think that this is true is because in verse five, John says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There's nothing bad, there's nothing dark, there's nothing evil, there's nothing immoral, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing sinful. God will suffer no imperfection in his presence. There's no darkness within him. What that means then is that when we sin, when we fall short of God's standards, God's not gonna bargain with you. You don't get to barter with him. You don't get to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but porn isn't that bad. I don't watch it that often, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian, but sexual morality isn't wrong if, as long as you're in love, right? It doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but God doesn't really care if I engage in shady and dishonest business practices, 
He doesn't care about the business world. He doesn't care if I take advantage of people financially. They have plenty of money. You know, they don't need it. He doesn't care if I fill in the blank, whatever it is. You know how I know that this is true, that God won't do this? Because God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He will not allow for it. Not only that, but John says this is true in the next verse, verse 6. He says, if we say, listen to this, we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So get this, when you live in sin unrepentantly, and that is a key word here that I want you to connect with. We'll find out why in a moment. But when you live unrepentantly in sin and you say that you have fellowship with Jesus, John says you're a liar. Why? Because you don't practice the truth. You're not walking in the light. You cannot say you are in the light and engage in darkness because God is light and in him there is no darkness. Right now, there is a huge emphasis in the world, uh, a huge push, if you will, for you to be more loving, to be more inclusive, to be more understanding, typically what is meant by that, because those are all good things. We should be loving. We should be inclusive. We should be understanding of people. We should listen more and speak less. These are not controversial things, I don't think, in, in our faith. But typically what is meant by this is that you're just to accept everyone for who they are. Never question anything they do. Never speak critically about any of their actions or negatively about any of the choices that they make. And this is all to be done in the name of love under the guise of inclusivity, right? And this kind of reasoning has begun to work itself even into the church. There are people in the church who think that Christians ought to be more loving and more like Jesus in their love for one another's. And and that means that that they are to accept other people no matter what, regardless of, of, of what they do, how they live, what they believe. You just need to be like Jesus and love them. Because that's loving. God is love. That's what the Bible says, right? And so what John is saying here And these verses is very important for us to hear because it attacks this line of reasoning a little bit. John is saying, yeah, you should be loving. God is love. That is true. But God is also light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. So you should love people, yes, but never at the expense of walking in darkness because then you're no longer walking in the light and you're, you're therefore no longer walking in God. In fact, if we continue to walk in the dark, or we continue to allow other people in our lives to knowingly walk in the dark, that's actually the opposite of of loving. Because we are allowing them to continue to engage in something that we believe, because God has revealed it to be so, is wrong or destructive. It's going to bring chaos and hurt into their lives. There was recently uh, on uh, social media this past week, it, it, it really blew up. I guess it was two weeks ago. I forget that this, this last week didn't happen because of the ice, right? So <clears throat> two weeks ago, there was a, a very um, highly circulated video on uh, various social media platforms about Andy Stanley. How many of you know Andy Stanley? Charles Stanley's son, uh, well-known pastor, preacher. And, and in his video, he appeals to Uh, particularly the homosexual attenders of his church. He applauds them for their bravery to come and to serve in the church, especially since historically they've been looked down upon by Christians. Now, to be clear, Stanley is not talking about people who struggle with same-sex attraction, but people who are living this out as a lifestyle, who see no issue with it, who fully embrace it wholesale. The idea 
that the Bible speaks to with regard to sexuality has to do with action, not with attraction. Okay, I want you to be very clear about that. Uh, the, the term sexual immorality is actionable. It's not, uh, it's not a, a desire. So there are people in the church who have same-sex desires. They want to honor Christ and obedience to the word, and so they don't act on those desires. I believe that God sees that as tremendous obedience, a kind of obedience, honestly, that, that heterosexual people probably don't really connect to uh, in many ways. Uh, but that is another talk. Stanley's not really talking about that. He's talking about people who are just living this lifestyle, uh, embracing who they are, and, and moving uh, through life as such. And he is using this kind of underlying reasoning in this video, the idea that, that you just need to love people and be inclusive because God is love, right? And this is exactly the kind of reasoning that John is attacking, that you can be loving apart from God's revealed truth is a lie. The truth is that God calls any kind of sexual activity, not desire, but activity outside of the context of covenant marriage, sinful. The question becomes, why? Why does he do that? Why is it a sin? Because it's God's revelation to humanity. It's, it's the light of his truth. It dictates the purpose, the end goal of humanity. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. We are given the covenant of marriage to enjoy and express the deepest forms of human intimacy in this life. And so anything that violates that purpose is in and of itself sinful. That's the issue at hand. So understand this. If a Christian does what Andy Stanley does and embraces this, this sort of inclusivity wholesale, what, what ends up happening is we, we are actually choosing to define and give meaning to our sexuality over and above God's revealed purpose for it. Now, has the church grossly mistreated homosexuals through the years? Absolutely. I think in many ways that is, there is no doubt about it. Uh, you can, just as a reminder to you, stand on truth and, and not be a butt about it. <laughs> In fact, the Bible doesn't just suggest this, it's a commandment that you are to speak the truth in love. God is light, but God is also love. Churches have historically either stood with truth the truth of God's word with absolutely zero compassion and love for other people, just hammered them with the hammer of truth, or they've majored on love with absolutely no truth at all. Both of these approaches are wrong and unbiblical. Sometimes Christians are, are, are hateful, there's no doubt about it, and they should repent of that. But sometimes Christians have been accused of being hateful when all they did was reiterate what the Bible says. We need to understand the difference. That's not hateful, that's loving. Because God is love, yes, but he's also light. And in him there is no darkness. Are you following? The New Testament in many ways is a blueprint for what we are to do. I wanna be very clear about this. We don't do the commandments of God to be saved, okay? Don't walk away from here and think, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I ought to, to do more of this so God loves me more. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. You don't go to heaven for following the commandments. You don't earn God's love and favor for following the commandments because here's why. You can't follow the commandments, not perfectly. But on the contrary, we do these things because we love Jesus. 
You, you gotta get that correct. You gotta get the order of that correct. I, as a husband, don't take my wife on dates in order that she'll love me more. I take her on dates because I love her. I wanna spend time with her. I don't take my kids to Six Flags so that they'll think I'm a better dad. I do it because I love my kids. And I wanna spend time with them. I wanna see them have fun. I, as a pastor, don't labor every day to teach and preach and shepherd in the way that I do just so that you'll accept me more. That doesn't keep me up at night. I do it because I love you and because God has called me to shepherd you and to preach and to be unapologetic about the Bible. And as a Christian, I don't do everything in my power to live in a manner that is pleasing to God so that God will love me more. I do it because I love him, because I've been transformed by him, by his grace, by his goodness in my life. It's a delicate balance. We have never really, I don't think, Christianity as a whole gotten this right, especially with regard to the same-sex community. There's a lot of work, I think, to be done there. To, To figure out how to speak truth, but to do so in a manner that is both loving and conveys the mercy of God upon belief in Christ, who loves them and desires a relationship with them. That's the blueprint, what to do. But the question is, What do you do when you don't do what you're supposed to do? (laughs) Then what? Let's talk about it. Keep reading, starting in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Remember a moment ago in verse six, I said that, uh, I read John said, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And what I said there was that John was talking about not the simple act of sinning, but living in sin in an unrepentant manner. I said that because of verses eight through 10. John makes two very important points here. They almost sound contradictory, but they're not. We're going to walk through them. First, he says, if you say you have fellowship with Christ, but you walk in the dark, you're lying. So if you say you have fellowship with Christ and you are walking in the dark, what he's saying is you're actually not walking with Christ. You're lying about it. But alternatively, he says, if you say you never walk in the dark, you're lying. (laughs) And you're calling God a liar as well. Now, the point of this, it sounds, again, or, uh, uh, contradictory, but it's, it's really quite simple. What John is saying here is when we live in fellowship with Jesus, our desires change. It changes us. It changes the desires of our heart. Many years ago, I had a mentor that I remember he used to say this all the time. It has stuck with me all through the years. Jessica will know as soon as I start saying it. How do you know you have a new relationship with Christ? Because you also have a new relationship with sin. That's a good measuring stick for your relationship with Jesus. Yeah, you may love Jesus, but do you hate sin? Because the two come together as a package deal. He he was saying differently what John says here, that your fellowship with Christ will change the way that you view sin. It's going to feel different. It's gonna fundamentally alter the way you experience sin. Prior to Christ, you didn't see certain behaviors or actions as sinful. But now, as a born-again believer with the indwelling Holy Spirit, you do. You sense this sort of quenching of the Spirit when you walk in sin. There's, there's a, a level of, of, I don't know, it, it feels heavy on you, right? It feels convicting because you know this is not right. Something's not right here. I remember when I, when I came to faith, I was uh, in a band at the time, 
And I, I remember thinking, I can be a Christian, this is a completely secular band, and, but it's going to be great because I can be a light and I can, you know, talk to people about Jesus and I can do all these great things. And, and so I kind of went in it very naively. And, and I remember the first show, I got to this club where we were playing and I walked in and I just felt like, man, this isn't, I'm not supposed to be here. And it's not that you shouldn't go to clubs and see music, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to like over-moralize this, but there was a, a, a deep sense of like, this so I am about to engage in things that are not good for me. And of course, that ultimately led to an after party uh, where upon needing to use the restroom, uh, I found cocaine. And I was like, okay, I need to leave the band. I, I need to just be a worship leader and get out of this. This is clearly not where God has called me to do. Uh, and, and you, by the way, should. I, I am going to overmoralize that. Don't do cocaine, okay? Um, <laughs> there is a line, all right? Let's just let's be clear about it. There is a line, no pun intended. I mean, where did this, wow. This is what happens when you leave the notes. What John is saying here is that you are not a Christian unless your relationship to sin has changed. Additionally, though, lest you get all self-righteous about this, he's gonna say, you're also lying if you say you no longer sin. So what's the answer? What do we do when we don't do what we're supposed to do? Verse 9 gives us the answer. You confess your sins. You confess your sins. Can we agree confession is a scary practice? Can we just agree with that? It's a scary practice. It's scary to make yourself known to someone, especially when it comes to the things that you're most ashamed of. Something that I think Protestant and evangelical churches have done a very poor job of, primarily because there's a real lack of clarity on what it means to confess in our traditions. Confession is, in the Greek term, homologeo, it's a word that means to speak the same as. So to confess sin means to come into agreement with God about the sinfulness of your actions, to speak the same as God regarding the thing that you've done. So if I sin, let's say I'm harsh with my wife, God convicts me of that sin, to confess that sin means to agree with God's assessment of my actions and to adopt his language regarding my harshness. That was sinful, I shouldn't do that. So when I pray, I can confess to him that I was harsh, that is literally me speaking the same as him, coming into agreement with him regarding my actions. When I think of confession, scripturally, there are usually two directions that this confession practice moves in. The first one is a vertical direction, upwards to God. Uh, obviously, if, if I'm going to, if confession is to speak the same as God, it makes sense for my confession to go to him. But, but it's my experience, again, in dealing with people through the years that this is usually where we like to stop with regard to confession. Just gonna confess it to God, and I'm gonna move on, and no one else needs to know about it. It's gonna be fine. God knows I'm repentant, so I can just move on. That's not, though, what God asks us to do. James chapter five, verse 16 says, you are to confess your sins to one another. And so there is a horizontal one another direction for confession as well. Now, how does this play out? Again, it's not rocket science. You go to someone that you know, that you trust, that loves Jesus, that is safe, and you tell them, I need to confess my sin to you. Can I do that? Is it going to be awkward? You bet it is. Is it going to be unpleasant? Of course, sin is unpleasant. 
But this is what God calls us to do. And when we do this, James says, you'll be healed. We don't know what he really, he doesn't qualify what that means. He doesn't give any kind of, but there is some aspect of healing connected to the practice of confession. So when we do this, there's something going on with the spirit interacting in us and the father hearing and other people interacting and, 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 and reminding us of grace and reminding us of our forgiveness. There's something in the economy between us and God that happens. So let me set some ground rules here for a moment. When you are looking for someone to confess your sins to, let me give you just a few ground rules. There's more than this. We could do a whole sermon on this topic. But I want to give you just a few ground rules for how to better understand and practice this. Number one don't choose your spouse. That may sound controversial. I'm not saying keep secrets from your spouse. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying don't vomit on your spouse. People who think that the best accountability partner is their wife or husband are foolish. I'm just gonna be, be very forward with you on this. When you sin and you feel bad about it and you have that desire to confess that to your wife, that is more about alleviating your discomfort, not them. That's for you, not them. So don't church it up and say, well, I just, we're, just, we're one. and we're... Stop. You feel bad about it, and you don't want to feel bad about it anymore. And so you're just going to throw it up on them. Not wise, not wisdom. Now, there are cases that are complicated. There are things, there's a, there's a, a measure of confession that can happen, and certainly you should not hold secrets from your spouse. That is, I think, marriage 101 within the Christian faith that we violate all the time somehow. But uh, again, another sermon. But in general, not the best practice to choose your spouse. Number two, not a person of the opposite sex, especially if you're married. If you're not going to confess to your wife, you're certainly not going to confess to any other woman, men, and women vice versa. Not wisdom at all. There are a whole lot of problems that that opens up. Uh, a whole lot of lines that get crossed. A whole, is it like going to lead to an overnight affair right then? Pro probably not. I mean, I hope not. My gosh. But it's going to open you up and disarm you in ways that you do not want to be opened up and disarmed. And number three, you need to find someone who will confess their sin to you as well. In other words, your confession person needs to be someone that is not just listening the whole time, but is going to remind you of God's grace and goodness and also confess their sin to you. Confess your sins to one another, not just to another. One another, right? I was reminded this week of a story about Brad Pitt. Uh, back in, it was like 2016, I think, he, uh, his marriage sort of fell apart with uh, Angelina Jolie after he came to terms with the fact that he was an alcoholic. And he attended an AA meeting every week for like a year and a half, one specific meeting, and went through the 12 steps, and I, I don't know where he's at now, I, I, I don't like follow Brad Pitt's life, but, um, but the story struck me as odd because this is what he said, he said, you had all these men sitting around being open and honest in a way that I had never heard. It was this safe space where there was little judgment and therefore little judgment of yourself. Wild, huh? <laughs> Weird that that happened with him. But what was more wild about it I think is that you had a person of Brad Pitt's caliber, superstar, bearing his soul to these men that he didn't know about all the worst things that he had done, and yet, how many of those stories ended up in the tabloid or the news? Yeah, none of them did. Why? 
Because those men understood in that group what it means to suffer with the same ailment. They understood the risk that it takes to share something like that. They were safe people. They had ammunition that they could have sold off in a heartbeat. Hey, you'll never believe what Brad Pitt confessed today in AA, right? But they didn't do that because they're, they're fellow sufferers. They, under, they understand. They get it. They know what the risk is involved with all this. And, and they know how hard it is. But, but alternatively, they know how beautiful it is to confess those things and, and to be received and with little judgment. Really amazing. He said, it was actually really freeing to just expose the ugly sides of myself. Yeah. No kidding. This is who we are at City on a Hill. This is what we believe at City on a Hill, a safe place to let go of those secrets that seek to destroy you. It's part of our mission, to be a place where you can radically and unapologetically share the worst parts of yourself and not receive judgment but grace. Why? Because you're sharing it with other people who are in the same sinking, burning boat. Except Jesus has saved you. He's covered you with his grace. We all need this. We all need, this isn't for addicts, this isn't for alcoholics, this is for Christians. We all need this. If you are a Christian, John says, and you say you have no sin, you have been deceived. You've been deceived. You're lying to yourself and you're making God a liar as well. The blueprint of scripture is, is, is that we take a straightforward look at what we're to do commandments of God, we're to walk in the light, we're to live in the moral uprightness of Christ. But what happens when we don't do that? God doesn't reject us. He doesn't turn his back on us. There's no take backs in the kingdom of God. So instead of hiding and burying ourselves in shame, John says, confess it. Find someone and confess your sin to God and to that other person. Because when you do that, what does John say? He is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to close this morning. I'm going to give you a few minutes. Uh, Kelsey's going to come up here. I, I, I want to give us a time to pray. And, and what I want you to do, as we've been working through this text, my intuition is that the Holy Spirit has laid on each of you uh, something that you need to confess, something that is going on in your life that you've not been willing to let go of. And I want to give you just a moment alone to pray, to go before the Father with Christ as your advocate through the power of the Spirit. And I want you to come into agreement with God about that sin, to confess that to him. And I want you to deeply consider a person that you can go to immediately and confess that to and begin to establish that relationship. Tonight, we're, we're going to be meeting back here at 6 p.m. for night of worship. We're gonna be taking communion. Paul has a lot to say about the condition of your heart when you come to the Lord's table. How beautiful would it be for you to spend this morning confessing to God that which you've maybe been holding on to, to find someone that you can let go of that secret and that shame and come here tonight at 6 p.m. free and ready to observe the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. What an incredible opportunity that God gives us when we come to his table. And so I'm gonna just give you a few moments and then I will pray to wrap us up and, and Kelsey is gonna lead us to close out.
And all will be added We seek first your kingdom And all will be added We seek first the kingdom And all will be added All will be added All will be added We seek first your kingdom And all will be added We seek first the kingdom And all will be added Seek first your kingdom, and all will be added, and you will be filled, you will be filled, this is the kingdom, this is the kingdom, this is the kingdom of heaven. Asking he will This is the king This is the king This is the kingdom of heaven This is the kingdom Lord we we desire that so deeply and we know that when we ask you listen you hear your people My prayer, God, my ask this morning is that you would give all of us the boldness, the courage to begin living this out. Confession of sin is, it does not have to be a scary thing. The way your scripture envisions it is actually a very healthy and regular thing that your people engage in to to deal with our failures that that we know that we're going to have. James doesn't say, if you sin, confess them to one another and pray. He just says, when it happens, it's a command. He anticipates it's going to happen because apart from our glorified heavenly bodies, we will remain in the same condition that led the Apostle Paul to say, Why do I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do? So would you help us? Give us the courage to make that first step to begin a healthy practice of letting go of those secrets that the enemy wants to use to dismantle us, to destroy our relationships, to destroy our marriages, that we might walk in the freedom that has been paid for us on the cross of Christ. How we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make you aware of a group that's beginning this week called Safe People. Uh, If you are not sure about someone to begin this confession practice with, but you really want to do it, you're just like, I don't know who to, who to choose, um, then I would highly encourage you to sign up for that group. That, this is the, the, the model that we have here at, at City on a Hill. It's a model for a reason, to, to give you a space to begin living in transparency. Uh, Safe People is a great place to sign up for that. You can do that through the app or in the foyer if you have questions about how to find uh, one of the staff members, and we'd love to help you. I hope to see you tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to worship. We're going to observe communion. It's going to be a wonderful time. What a, what a wonderful time it is to be with you. We're two weeks into 1 John, and already it's meddling with us, isn't it? Praise God for that. God bless you. We'll see you next time.